fell asleep in church. Well, good morning, folks. It is the Monday of annual conference, and we could be watching online and getting frustrated, but instead we are here podcasting, and that's a good thing. It really is. You know, I pray that God doesn't lead me into temptation. This podcast this morning is God's answer to a way out from the temptation to be angry at annual conference. I'm excited. You and me both. All right, let's go. So yesterday, you and I team preached, which was cool. It was cool. Um, the The first question that we had come in for the series that we began yesterday asking for a friend was the question, why does the Apostle Paul hate women? <laughs> which is, it, it's not the first time I've heard that question. No. Um, I no. think just about every time, you know, disciple Bible study has gotten to that point, point or covenant Bible study or, you know, really any time you are reading through the prison epistles with um, modern people, the question, <laughs> the question arises, mm-hmm. what is Paul's problem, man? Mm-hmm. Like, this is ridiculous because you have, you know, the, the passage from first Corinthians about women remaining quiet and asking their husbands after the service, what's going on? Um, Love that one. It's my favorite. You know, you have the household code in Ephesians 5, where wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives, children obey your parents, parents don't exasperate your children, slaves obey your masters, masters don't abuse your slaves, you know. Um, you know, and there are these these other passages where Paul says things that, um, if read in a vacuum, make him sound like a monster. Yeah. But the thing is, we can't read the Bible in a vacuum, not if we're going to treat it properly. And if we read all of Paul through the lens of these handful of verses, which you can rip out of context and make it into a monster, then, you know, yeah, he becomes a monster. But I submit that it is more appropriate to read Paul through the lens of Romans chapter 16. Um, With Romans, we have a letter that is in no way disputed by anyone to its authorship. Um, Which even the ones that are disputed, like I don't think it's, it's appropriate to say that um, you know, if it was an associate of Paul that wrote Ephesians, that that associate had an issue with women, right? Like, like yeah. I, I think that's still a bad reading. Um, it's yeah, still I, ripping it out of context. I found commentaries largely unhelpful on this, which surprised me, right? Like, Did you go to the IVP Women's Bible Commentary? I didn't know there was such a thing. So, no, I did not. Yeah. I was, that's where I went for part of it, at least. Okay. But. I, um, yeah, I started off, and this may have been part of the problem. Um, oh, the New Interpreter's Bible commentary okay. set yep. is where I started. Um, and it just talked about how, you know, 
some of the verses weren't written by Paul. And I, I yep. was I was like, I, I find I find that unhelpful. It's it, still canon. Right. It right? doesn't change the <laughs> it doesn't change the fact that it's in our scripture. And I understand why from an academic standpoint, it may be helpful to recognize that there's something going on here that's unusual. But from a faith standpoint, this is one place where the academy with that type of statement has done nothing to build up the church. Not a thing. Well, and I mean, I, I think you can, like in terms of saying, like, is this a first century picture of what the church is like or a third century picture of what the church is like. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's a helpful distinction to say, mm-hmm. you know, there, there could have been some development within the machinery of the local church that led to some things happening in that, that gap. Sure. Um, but well, yeah, from the standpoint of, you know, it's, you know, it's still canon. So whether or not Paul wrote it, in the year 75 or an associate or, you know, the, the leader of the Pauline faith community wrote it in the year 211 mm-hmm. is irrelevant. Right. Um, we are still dealing with interpreted canon or inspired canon. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> which is why, and, and the thing is you don't even have to go there. Right, like if you just look at the the fullness of the letters, like the the gotcha verses don't carry the weight that. Yeah, I mean, this is why yesterday I read some of Paul's other writings, some things that I love, you know, that have encouraged me. Um, I think the issue is, though, that at least um, probably for women who have been raised up in faith in more conservative circles, um, when those verses are read, they are read and, and looked at in order to bring women into a position of subordinates. Um, so you do have this kind of visceral reaction as a woman when you read it, right? And those words jump off the page in the way that I wish they wouldn't and can make you slam shut your Bible and wonder what's going on. I've been there. I get that. Which I think may be precisely what Paul's trying to do. Right? Like, uh, mm. hmm. I mean, like I, I talked about this a little bit, like the, the household code. You know, one of the the female commentators I read suggested that perhaps the reason why he picked those particular verbs um, is because he knew that's what tends to be difficult for the genders. That men, by and large, don't have problems submitting to their wives. Mm -hmm. Like, we don't. (laughs) Like... 99 times out of 100, like, I just want Cindy to tell me where she wants to eat. Mm-hmm. And I'll go along <laughs> with it, right? Sure, Like, sure. I, I don't have a, a, an issue, you know, if she says, hey, we do this with the kids, I say, okay. Right, like, there is, 
there are there are few and far between times where I push back on what Cindy you know suggests we should do as a family. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know this idea of like self giving love, that's a lot harder. Mm-hmm. Like Cindy didn't get any of my quart of ice cream. You know, like like it's it's the the being thoughtful of others is harder for men. Mm-hmm. Like especially being thoughtful towards the needs of our wives, in my experience at least, is a much harder ask for men than submitting to our wives' stated desires. Yeah. Well and likewise, you know, at least in the households I've been a part of none of the women have had problems with self-giving love. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, you know, my mom ate cold meals because, you know, she made sure everyone had their food. She made sure everyone had their seconds. Everyone had their drinks. By the time she finally got to eat, you know, it was cold. Right? Like, yeah. And, you know, the same thing's true for Cindy. You know, being in... Uh, in like going and seeing how Cindy's family operates, same thing's true for her mom, right? Like it's just, yeah. You know, and like my 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 grandmothers are both this way. Like like I don't know a woman who struggles with that sort of self givingness. Now, after a while, they may be like, "Man, I am wore out. You guys yeah. need to figure this stuff out because yeah. I am tired of being your maid." Yeah, but but like there's a strong willingness to like give of themselves for the people who they love in a way that you rarely see in men. Yeah. But yeah. when the language of submission comes up, it's like, whoa, 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 hold on now. I'm like, no, 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 no. Right? Like, no, I don't want to no. know. Well, and it's funny how this, in my head, goes right back to the fall, right? Yeah. Like, you look at Genesis 3. I'm going to pull it up real quick. Um, you know, after... God comes to the garden and uh, gets Adam and Eve to finally explain what happened. Let's see here. All right. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. Thanks, Eve. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Right? And so... I mean, as a Christian, I look at that and I'm like, that's the effect of the fall, right? So, Okay, so here's a line of thinking that I haven't read in a commentary yet, but I, I am confident that it's out there because, anyway, because there are people, people are much smarter than me who write commentaries. Um, so, you know... Paul talks about the freedom that we have, and this is a big theme of his, right? But don't abuse that freedom. So I do wonder if, especially, I was thinking more about um, Corinthians, where, you know, I don't permit a woman to speak in church. Well, we know that, um, you know, a lot of the the religion, a lot of the uh, cults, cultic worship, not cults like we think of today. Especially in Corinth. Yeah. Um, were women's, were female-centric, right? Like, there were, there were female, there were priestesses, there were the temple prostitutes. Um, 
women would have been a little more bold. And even if they weren't, like the fact that in Christ there is neither male nor female, I just wonder, you know, if there were some women who had come in and heard the gospel but were so used to the pagan practices that they just imposed that upon Christianity. And Paul's like, wait a minute, whoa, 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 you know. Um, it's it's quite yeah. likely, quite likely, um, you know, especially if we take into context the idea of not covering your hair. Yeah, you know that. I mean, that's a, a cultic practice, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, women out in the streets have their heads covered. Mm-hmm. You go to uh, the temple and you're looking for a temple prostitute. Find a lady who has her hair uncovered. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean. Yeah, this this idea of what does it look like to be culturally competent so that um, you aren't sending the wrong message is is a theme that, that Paul is, he takes pretty seriously. Yeah. I mean, he talks about this with eating meat sacrificed to mm-hmm. idols, right? Yep. For those who know that idols are not real and that everything ultimately is God's, God, like belongs to God, uh, maybe you don't have a problem eating meat sacrificed to idols. But because other people do, you don't do it when you're with other people who may, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, yeah, I think it's probably the same thing going on there. I just, I find it so hard to believe that a man who would talk about the importance of humility, a man who would brag about being a prisoner, a man who would um, suffer the way he did for the gospel, I find it hard to believe that he wasn't living into the fruits of the Spirit. Well, and let's look at at the way he describes the women who works with him. Yeah, right? yeah, Romans like, 16. So Romans chapter 16. Like, I would argue that this should be the lens with which we view, you know, Paul's Paul's general ideas about women. So he writes, Now I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who's a servant of the church in Centria, Centria, Centria. I don't know. <laughs> so that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and provide her with whatever help she may need from you, for she has been a great help to many, including me. Now, what he is saying here is this letter that is being delivered is being delivered by Phoebe. Mm-hmm. She is my messenger. Mm-hmm. She is my herald. She will bring the letter to your church. She will read it to your church. She will interpret it and answer any questions you have. She is a commissioned preacher by Paul to the church in Rome. Hard to rectify women don't speak in church with Phoebe, this educated woman, is going to come and, you know, preach to you. Right. Let's keep going. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their own necks for my life. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for them. What Two more ladies. What version are you reading? Uh, this is the net. Oh, okay, okay. I've got the NIV up, but, I mean, it's, they're, yes, the translations are similar enough. Yeah. You know, verse 6, greet Mary, who's worked very hard for you. Wait, wait, wait. Let's, let's back up to verse 5. Okay. 
Greet also the church that meets at their house. So the household was the domain of the woman. Mm-hmm. And because Priscilla is listed first, like there's significance to this. So I just wanted to mention that they, um, they were not just well-known and people were grateful for their work within the larger community, but there was a church that meant under their guidance. Yep. Verse 6, greet Mary, who's worked very hard for you. Verse 7, greet Adronicus and Junia. Uh, Adronicus is a man, but Junia mm-hmm. is a woman. Um, my compatriots, again. Junia <laughs> is a woman. Yes, <laughs> Kevin DeYoung, Junia is a woman. This was big on the Twitter sphere a couple of weeks ago. Mind boggling. Really me. bad scholarship. No serious scholar of the New Testament today disputes that this is a woman anymore. Used to be a thing, not anymore. My compatriots and fellow prisoners, they are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Now, that's an interesting translation. Yeah, what do you have instead of compatriots? Uh, Well, okay. So the NIV says, my fellow Jews who have been Mm. in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles. Mm -hmm. And hang on just a second. Let me go to the NRSV, the new standard... Uh, or the New Revised Standard Version. Tell me what verse that is again. Uh, There we go. Seven. Uh, Greet them, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles. So uh, there's clearly, I mean, these these translations now actually do say different things. So I Mm -hmm. bet the ESV, I bet the English Standard Version doesn't give the... um, the impression that they were actually apostles, but that the apostles, you know, appreciated them and, and knew them well. Um, yes. So the English Standard Version says, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, they are well known to the apostles. So this is this comes up to the trouble of translation, right? Mm-hmm. So the way this is written, um, because translation is an art and not a science, there is some dispute. Our is Paul saying that they were um, well-known to the apostles, well-known among them, like you would I mean, be... to and among radically changes the way we understand it, it in English. It does. It does. Um, Caleb, you are well-known among the people of Trinity because you are a part of the people, mm-hmm. and you're the leader. So to be well-known among the apostles... I am well-known to the people at Purple Door because we've done stuff mm-hmm. with them. Yes. I've well known, I'm well-known among Trinity because I'm a part of this. Right. I think that's... The, you know, yes. In English, that's the way we tend to distinguish yes. it. Yes. But I think now most... So I'm biased. The NRSV is what I read for academic study of Scripture. Um, I... I think it is one of the least biased when they're making their translations or their, you know, their decisions about translation. The ESV is very traditional when it comes to um, no, how women are framed. I mean, the ESV is translated by reformed folks right. with a reformed bit. Yeah. Right. Um, I so mean, honestly, the net is too, right? Like the, clearly. The, the thing I like about the net is, um, you know, you hit the, 
the superscript on well-known mm-hmm. and the argument is there, right? Like, yeah. like, like, you know, so they'll make their translation, but they recognize and they open up the, the, the possibility of these other ways it could go and they make their their case for why they think it should be this way and sometimes it's compelling and sometimes it's like uh, okay (laughs) yeah and also even just going back to verse one um the nrsv and the niv refer to phoebe as a deacon because the word there is not translated consistently for women in the same way that it is for men so if phoebe had been male um in those more reformed uh, translations, deacon is probably the word they would have chosen, but in them they more often refer to Phoebe as servant. That's the ESV, yep. the Net. My um, guess is, yeah, the King James. So yeah, this is why it's really important to read multiple versions of scripture or multiple translations of scripture. Um. This is also why I struggle with the concept of inerrancy. Is the version that you're reading inerrant? Oh, it's the original manuscripts that we don't have? Then inerrancy doesn't matter. Anyway, side, side little rabbit trail there, sorry. Yeah, I mean, like, the, the question of... Like, I, I think we have to be able to say... Scripture is reliable. Yes. Especially if we are using multiple versions to work through difficult passages. Um, Because the reality is the multiple versions are so very similar. Yeah. Like, yeah, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. But, yeah, the, the, the question of inerrancy for all of us who don't read Greek and Hebrew is a little bit moot. Yeah. Um, what because even? whatever translation you have in front of you, like it is reliable to a extent, mm-hmm. um, but the language of inerrancy for your translated English language Bible is an inappropriate distinction. Yeah. Well, and if you're... If your view on the of the Bible is related to quote unquote, like this is how I've always heard it, the original manuscripts were inerrant. Great, we don't have those. Well, maybe we have them, but we wouldn't know. Like, no. and and you know there were small changes, like there are tiny little changes between man. Anyway, okay. Well, and I mean, like we should stop here and say, like, we don't have. Like, the original letter that Paul sent with Phoebe to the Romans, Mm -hmm. we do not have. Right. But we have 30 copies of it made within the first 50 years. That are... And they are pretty darn similar. Yep, yep. Like, there there is nothing in them that's like, oh, well, this is just way out of bounds. Um, So, again, like, we we can trust the reliability of Scripture... Absolutely. Um, And we're not Muslim. So Muslims take the, the Quran and the Muslim faith is almost the way we look at Jesus, right? Like these words to them are divine. And um, that's not we, that's not who we are. That's not our, 
that's not our tradition. Anyway, moving on. Sorry, Caleb. Moving forward in Romans chapter 16, greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, both female names, laborers in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, who's worked hard in the Lord. More and more names, Julia. I love this. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and greet his mother, and mother to me also. <laughs> Aw. How, how can you not love that? Thanks, Paul. That was so sweet. So you have, you know, as Paul is going through his salutations of the Roman church, he has, at the very top, received Phoebe, Mm-hmm. who I am sending this letter with, who I am trusting with interpreting the letter and answering your questions. Mm-hmm. The church that this letter is being received by meets at the home of Priscilla and Aquila, who are a big deal in yep. the church in Rome. Absolutely. Um, you have... I mean, so of the first... Uh, the first six people who are um, who are greeted in this letter, four of them are female. And if you keep going down, like more than half well, of of seven. the total greetings, yeah, are seven. seven people. So we've got Phoebe, we've got Prisha, and I've I've not heard the name. Pr- I always pronounced it Aquila. So that's probably wrong. Yeah. No, you're probably right. I, um, <clears throat> so there's three, two out of three. Uh, then we've got. I, I, I'm just I, I uh, you know so the Reds have an outfielder named Aristides Aquino, and uh-huh. it's that A Q U I. Yeah, because that's so, a Hispanic name, yeah. right? So I've 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 turned uh, uh, Aquila from a um, a Italian woman yeah. into a you know. Yeah. Latin American woman. Yeah. But. Uh, and then Epinacious, that is male. Uh, Mary, and then... Jamie. Yeah, but there's one before that. Uh, Adronicus. Thank you. Yeah. So seven. Seven. And one, two, three, four. Because Aquila was actually... Aquila was a male, right? Mm-hmm. No? It'd be Aquilus. It'd be a man. Oh, that's true. So look at that. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. I don't know what I was thinking. But so, I mean, yeah. the, the point is that, you know, Paul, if he really has this big issue with women, he's not sending the letter with Phoebe. And he's not recognizing a church that is led by women. Right. And he's not celebrating the work of Mary. And he's not reaching out to Rufus's mother. <laughs> right. I mean, like, it's it's just like that that some people are still using these Pauline passages ripped out of context to marginalize female voices is mind-boggling to me. Like, like we know better. We know better. Well, one would think. But again, this goes, I think I mentioned this yesterday in my sermon, this goes to your hermeneutic, right? So um, as I read Paul, it seems very clear to me that 
he's trying to help these disciples of Jesus find a balance between being a good witness to their neighbors who are not Christian, who are not disciples, um, in that they are still upstanding citizens, right? Um, Justin Martyr did this, the, you know, one of the early apologists for the church, right? Like when Christians were being slandered, he's like, wait, 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 wait. Look at these fine, upstanding people, right? Like we're peaceful. We, you know, we're obedient. Um, I think Paul is trying to help people find a balance between caring well for the people around them and, and being upstanding citizens of their community and exercising their freedom in Christ, like when Paul says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, Gentile, male nor female, you know, um, it, I was taught in the Baptist church that that just relates to salvation, right? Like mm. God doesn't care. And I, I think that it does relate to salvation. But I think for Paul, that had a r- very real impact on the way we live here um, in this time and in this place. Like what, what, how can you say, you know, daughter of God, you are equal to men in the sight of God. Oh, but men are in charge. Like that doesn't, that does not compute. It just doesn't. No. Nope, it doesn't. But I mean, and um, I think it was Tom Wright who, um, who was talking about, I think it was the church in Corinth, um, how, like, in, in this community that has, um, you know, the, the female temple, mm-hmm. it was also a, a way to not run out male leadership. Mm-hmm. So the assumption within the community is that women do things spiritually and men don't. So you have men who are, you know, participating in worship yeah. and, you know, the cultural assumption is if women show up to do it, you know, the men, you can just go get lost. We don't need you anymore. Go fight the wars. You know, so so Paul is, and I mean, and the radical thing to me is that, like, I can't tell you how many times at Cedarville, um, the the comment was made, you know, if there are no men to do ministry, then women can. <laughs> I love that. Right? I love that. And it's like, like, Paul is fighting, like, the exact opposite impulse. Right. Right, that says, well, you know, men can participate in the church if there aren't any women. Like, because I mean, that's kind of the. Yeah. I think it's the Corinthian. I'm pretty, pretty sure, sure that's the community where, where that would have been going on. Um, and he's saying, no, 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 no. Men continue to be a part of the church. Right. Like, we want that fullness of of perspective. We want that fullness of. Um, the created order, don't give up on that. Yeah. Don't just go along with culturally what, um, what's expected. Yeah. Well, and for me personally, too, like this, this has important implications in church leadership. So 
were I to become a lead pastor at a church that can also afford a second pastor, like that has an, an appointed associate, whatever that associate role looks like, like to me, it would be very important that I serve with a man hmm. because I just, I, I am not a man. I do not understand what it is like to be male. So yesterday when I was encouraging the women of Trinity saying, this is good news for you. I'm looking at my brothers. I'm like, but you're not excluded. I just, I don't know what you face. I don't understand what you go through. Like, here's some things I think you might go through, but here's the truth. Like if the gospel frees women, it also frees men. Like, mm. like if women aren't free, men aren't free either. Um, I know my husband really struggled with the, you know, primary breadwinner thing when we were Baptist because he just, he would not have been able to secure a job that would actually support us in any way that kept us out of poverty. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, not complete poverty, but like we wouldn't have been able to go to the Baptist church because we would have had to have lived in a cheap apartment somewhere else in Southeast Ohio. And then he wouldn't have even had his job. Yep. Right. Like, um, so he was free from that because I was free from, from the restrictions the church was trying to put on us anyway. So I think it's important that in leadership in the church, we have men and women, you know, represented and, and, the way we see scripture, the way God talks to us, like they're both important. And so I, I love my sister clergy, but I much prefer to work with a male clergy person just because I think it's important for the health of the church. There's my two cents. I don't don't want to be a part of an all woman led church any more than I want to be a part of an all male led church. I think both are equally not good. And I think what I would say is that, that there is value in diversity. Yes. Right? Like, you know, it is good that you're a w- woman. It's also that you, it's, it's a good thing that you have this Baptist background. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, my, you know, my, uh, my Methodist imperfection is Lutheranism, not you know, the Baptist tradition. Hey man, right? we love the Lutherans. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. you know, we like diversity is a good thing, like in and of itself. Like there is like, it is important for us to remember that John Wesley's Aldersgate experience didn't happen in a room full of Anglicans mm-hmm. reading the book of common prayer. It's true. It happened at a Moravian prayer meeting as they read Martin Luther's commentary on the Book of Romans. Right. Well, in, like, in, in America, we think of, uh, oh boy, Azusa? Azusa, mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Azusa Az- Street Resiv- Revivals? Yeah. So that launched um, the holiness Pentecostal type movement in America, which is part of our heritage as United Methodists. That happened in a racially diverse, diverse setting. Like the assemblies of God, the, the church that kind of was really, you know, finds their birth in that is one of the most ethnically diverse mm-hmm. denominations in our country. Like it's, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. 
Um, yeah. Well, and I guess I guess what I'm saying is, you know, like there are multiple ways to look at diversity. It's true. And it is if if you were a Methodist woman with Lutheran sensibilities, I don't think you'd be diverse enough for me for us to be able to take advantage of that diversity. Maybe. You know, because like if if we are, you know, equally, um, you know, like it's, it is, it's not only that you are female, Mm -hmm. it's that you are wired prophetically and I am not. It's that you have these Baptist sensibilities, which I do not have. So, I mean, there are, there are these multiple layers of diversity, which having you as a partner in ministry, you know, corrects, (laughs) you know, the places where I could get in trouble. Well, Um, and for me, um, being raised, so I I think it too goes to where do, where does each individual see their strength, right? Like I see my, I see my gifts and wiring tied to being a woman and tied to being raised in relative poverty, right, in Appalachia, Ohio. Like, I don't fit in with middle-class America well. I'm all, I always feel like an outsider. Um, so, yeah, I guess in, in my head, it, it, I think it also depends on the church you're serving, right? Mm. Like, I love Trinity. I love this church. These people, they are so great. Um, but, you know, there is a culture here of middle-class America that I struggle with. And I, I, I need an interpreter. <laughs> um, and, but, you know, if I were in urban ministry, in a section of town where I was an ethnic minority, I, A, I'm not entirely sure I, sh- I would be the primary leader in that because I'm not, I don't think that's helpful um, but I mean, y- yeah, you know, at that point, like ethnic diversity becomes extremely important if you're going to be a white person in a church that is not primarily white because you yeah. don't have that lived experience. Yeah. And, and I think it becomes a bigger question of what is the value of diversity? Yeah. Like tokenism isn't that helpful. I mean, like... It's, it's a starting place, but, you know, like, if you have, if you're putting a team together and all of your decisions about who goes on the team are about checking boxes and not about paying attention to what the mission of the team is, mm-hmm. you are doomed for failure. And I think you and I have a slightly different perspective on this. Like, I want to agree with you wholeheartedly. But teams tend to perpetuate themselves. So the people, especially like as I think about, um, you know, the new denomination starting, like it is important to have women in the ground floor, on, in the groundwork, so that we don't have to fight for those positions later. Because Mm. the majority, especially among clergy, because the majority of clergy are male, and 
the overwhelming majority of Orthodox clergy are male. There are very few women. Um, and I think we talked about this too, like the women among us are primarily local pastors. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, you know, it's, it's hard to find your voice unless you're wired to be sassy like some of us are. <laughs> um, it's hard to find your voice when your colleagues around you are male, when you're constantly in a less than full-time position in the church, you know what I'm saying? So I agree with you. Like, we should bring on the most qualified people, but we also have to make sure that there is room for women at the table, even if those women are women who need to be encouraged to find their voice, right? Because if they aren't present at the beginning, it's going to be harder for them to be present later. This is also true with ethnic, right? Like, it's true of all types of diversity, well, and, and it's, I mean, I think the, one of the big differences in the breaking of barriers and ceilings in the 20th century as opposed to the 21st century. In the 20th century, barriers were broken with excellence. Like Jackie Robinson was awesome. Mm-hmm. He helped the Dodgers win. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Sally Ride was the best pilot in the Air Force. Mm -hmm. She was the best astronaut NASA had. They had to send her to space. Mm -hmm. This past fall, the girl who kicked a couple extra points at Vanderbilt wasn't awesome, right? Like, like she didn't help the team win. Mm -hmm. And it's like, like we, we fundamentally understand that they're, that it was a gimmick. And gimmicky representation, I don't think actually helps. And I think that the danger becomes when you get into a high pressure situation and you need need excellence Mm -hmm. and what you have is gimmicky, Mm -hmm. then that sets you back as far as being able to perpetuate having that kind of diversity on your team. If Jackie yeah. Robinson would have come up and would have stunk the joint up. Yeah, it's like, not helpful. Y- y- you don't see, um, you know, the expansion of African-Americans in baseball through the 60s and 70s. Right. Like, he needed to come up and be excellent and prove that, yes, it will help your team win games bringing in someone who looks different from the other 24 players on the roster. Mm-hmm. You know, Sally Ride went to space and everyone's like, dang, mm-hmm. she can do it. Like, have, have you seen the movie Hidden Figures? No. So here's, here's the challenge though. Like, and I, I think this is where things like, yes, you need people of excellence in on the ground floor. Um, so Hidden Figures is about the women doing the math to support NASA in the background. Mm-hmm. The black women. Mm-hmm. Um, Super who, geniuses. Yes. Who still couldn't break that daggone barrier. Um, were the women in the room all smarter than the smartest men in the other rooms? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe not. Right? 
So, so the, the, the issue, in the Disney version, they are. Well, maybe. <laughs> I mean, certainly some of them were yeah. right, and they proved that women and black women, especially, are capable of this. But the problem becomes that when we perpetuate um, this, you have to be excellent to be included. Um, excellence is often forged. Like, like a good player becomes better on a good team. Yep. I confess that my bias of women clergy is that most of us aren't up to par with our male colleagues. Um, now, whether or not that's actually true, I don't know. But here's what I do know. Um, it's hard when you're, when, when you're not surrounded and encouraged by excellent leaders, right? Like I think I've it's been, a volume thing. M- maybe. Right? Like, I, I think, um, you know, what is it? Something like 75% of pastors in West Ohio are male. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you only have you know, a smaller group to begin with. Yep. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, and, you know, in in local churches who are receiving their first pastor that is different from what they've had previously. Lord have mercy for male or female, ethnicity, whatever. Minorities, right. Yeah. Um, like if you've had twelve pastors and they've all been white dudes, mm-hmm. some of them haven't been any good. Yeah, but a couple of them have been good. Yep. So like you understand there is this spectrum of what the pastors you've had their you know capacity and competence. And for whatever reason, there's something in our brain that when someone comes in and breaks the mold, they don't just fit into that bigger evidence basket. They become an evidence basket all to themselves. Yes. So if your first female pastor is hot garbage, it's really hard to be like, yeah, I'll take another one of those. Yep. Because you don't have that that big evidence basket that says, you know, some are terrible, but some are great. Yeah. Um, now, to be fair, this is not just a matter for clergy, right? Like men in nursing, right? Like it, it's unusual to see a male nurse. Now, I... It's even more unusual to see a male kindergarten teacher. Exactly. <laughs> well, Maya's first grade teacher was a man, and he was outstanding, right? But I think... You got to be. Oh, I mean, oh, if, if, if you aren't, you wash out real fast. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was very conscientious. Like, he realized that his voice was louder, and so he would speak softly and use a microphone, right? Mm-hmm. So he always, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that, that this bias goes multiple ways, right? So I wanted to just insert that. Um, but for me as a Baptist, you know, as a previous Baptist, um, and as a woman growing up in a very conservative rural area, right? Like, um, yeah, I, um, my mom didn't finish college. My grandmother didn't go to college, right? Like, uh, my dad didn't even go to, but, but that female first is, is hard. It's hard. 
But it, in my opinion, um, if you already have a good group and if they're willing to take on representation from people who may not be the absolute best but can be coached into it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Like, well, and, and I don't, yeah, like I, I don't think there's even this sense of, like I, I agree with you. This idea that everyone's supposed to be a finished product when they get there is unreasonable and not helpful. Um, but I think there is a sense that, like, if you introduce toxicity, true, for the token, mm-hmm. like that is not a net win. <laughs> yes. I would um, agree with that. If you introduce laziness for the token, that's not a net win. Um, like th- there needs to be something that unites the group. Mm-hmm. There needs to be some, you know, covenanted expectations yeah. that are bigger than just, you know, yeah. y- your melanin count and your chromosomal. Yeah. Uh, you know, randomness. Yep. Does it force? Of course, I also like at this point in my life question laziness because I have often felt very like I have often looked at my life and been like, why am I so lazy? Why can't I get things done? Right? Like, um, and then I start like then I get this ADHD thing and I start stimulants and I'm like, I was never lazy. I was paralyzed. <laughs> like I, I was so overwhelmed I couldn't move, right? Mm-hmm. Like I was taking in so much. Like if you if you had lived in my head, there's no way you would have gone like she's lazy. You would have been like, what is going on in this head? Mm-hmm. Right. So I I I'm looking at li- like I'm also reevaluating what does it mean to be lazy, right? Um and you know, also as women, like it's it is, it is both a blessing and a curse that I'm wired the way I am. Um, it's a blessing because, like, I, I am not afraid to speak up and say hard things when I feel that it's the right time. Hmm. But there are not many women like that. It's a curse because a woman who often will speak up and say hard things when it's time, and I try to be very diplomatic and loving, right? Like I try not to come off as a word that I'll keep off the podcast (laughs) or, you know, that I don't want to be that woman. A synonym for female dog. Yeah. I don't want to be that woman. Rhymes Um, with snitch. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, (laughs) Um. but the reality is, is that anytime you're a woman who is willing to speak her mind and be assertive, I try not to be aggressive. Like you're going to like there will be people who don't like you just because of that. Like, it, it, I mean, the, the, like so, I don't know what it's like being a woman in that position, but being you know twenty five to thirty years younger than. The other people in the room. I mean, it's it's yeah, a you get similar. Arrogant. It's a yeah. similar sort of thing, right? Yeah, you probably get. Um, who does he think he is? That arrogant man. I mean, it's um, it's it's this, and I think you know, wisdom says, um, you know, learning how to be selective, 
mm-hmm. when when you talk is you know is beneficial because yeah. you know not every hill is worth dying on you know just because in a situation you think you have an idea that's a little bit better you know sometimes it's okay to let a 80% idea get through absolutely but <clears throat> yeah and, and, you know, it's just, again, it goes to what are your values, too, right? Like, you and I can can and have disagreed on when is it okay for that idea to pass. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never felt, I've never felt like you've totally discounted my different viewpoint. Well, um, what would be the benefit of that? What? <laughs> sorry. Kale. It's like I don't know if you're laughing at this noises my stomach is making, or if if if, if I said something <laughs> funny there. Um, what would be the benefit of discounting that? Um, I mean, I hope you're you're honest with me though. <laughs> like, you're just gonna get mad at me. Where's the point in that? Well, no, like, no, it's it's not even yeah, that, right? Yeah. It's like, um, so intellectual virtue is like I. I value intellectual virtue yeah. as much as I, like probably even more so, I value intellectual virtue over like ethical virtue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to be fair, I think the two are tied, but proceed, well, please. Yeah. Um, and it's like intellectual virtue demands that you recognize that the information that you have is incomplete. Mm-hmm. Even if you are an expert, the information that you have is incomplete. And that when someone has looked at their information and come to a conclusion that's different than you, the intellectually virtuous thing to do is to allow doubt to creep in on your evaluation of the evidence. Mm-hmm. So like to dismiss a secondary opinion mm-hmm. doesn't move you towards the truth. Yeah. It doesn't move you towards a virtuous evaluation of the evidence. Yeah. Um, you know, because, you know, even even if someone has taken a bad route to get to where they're going, they may have a piece of evidence that they have luckily come to the right conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, without having the humility and charity and sincerity and integrity to ask for that evidence to give someone else a hearing to you know widen your own evidence basket to widen your own evaluative framework you know yeah like the it, it doesn't it doesn't help you move towards that which is true yeah so and for those of us who hear you say you know not every hill is worth dying on and go well, the majority of them are like there is wisdom 
in, like, I don't, okay. Whoo, okay. So you and I do have disagreements. Mm-hmm. Um, but here is the reality. Like, we might walk away and I still might think I'm right. But I also value the fact that, and this is ethics too, right? Like, I am for canoeing the mountains together. Oh, gosh. I know, I know, I know. I, I think that um, shared leadership is super important. Um, but I recognize that ultimately the responsibility in most of the groups we're in of the, the final decision, the leadership, is you, right? And I'm thankful because you probably make the better decision nine times out of ten. I'm learning, right? Like, I'm learning. It's okay. Um, you've been doing this pastor thing longer than I have. You've had much more experience leading a church than I have. Um, and I would say that, you know, about many pastors in this conference in general. Like, I might not like the decision, um, but you know what? I'll... I'll rely upon the wisdom that God is giving you, right? Like, it's hard. It's hard. It's yeah. not fun. Because I'd like to die on that hill. But if you're telling me not to die on the hill, I'll live another day then. Fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and that's the... I mean, I think that's... That is the sort of anchor that is necessary to do intellectual virtue well, Mm -hmm. right? Like you need to have established like what, you know, what, what is a hill worth dying on? And understand how the different hills that people want to fight on relate to it. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, there are some hills that are worth fighting on, not even necessarily because if that hill is lost, it's, you know, the end of the world, but because if that hill is lost, you're going to die on the next one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and I think that when you boil it down, like, what you're saying and what I'm saying both comes down to um, the practice of humility, right? Like humility has to underlie intellectual virtue. Like without humility, you can't have it. Yep. Um, I would say the same thing for second chair leadership. Like I'm not all that in the bag of chips because I'm not in charge. And this is good for me. It keeps me humble. It lets me walk out of the room fuming because I didn't get my way and come back around and like talk to God about it and be reminded that it's okay that you didn't get your way. And someday if I, God for, I'm not going to say God forbid, someday if I am in charge, I'll be a better leader because of that experience, right? Like, Yeah, we need the wilderness, Yeah, right? Like you look at, um, you know, who tends to get in trouble. And oftentimes you look at the bigger history and, um, yeah, like 
like I think to myself, man, if they just would have had some years in the wilderness, Mm -hmm. they could have avoided this. Mm -hmm. But things have been too easy to this point. Mm -hmm. Well, and this is probably why I like second chair too. Like I actually think for me personally, second chair is far more challenging than first chair. Because I have to... Well, for me personally, at this point in my life, because I have to constantly remind myself that I am ultimately in charge of me and my responses to things, but there are lots of decisions that I don't have ultimate authority on and that I'm going to disagree with, and it's okay. Right? Like, that's okay. And uh, that doesn't change, you know, Moving up the organizational chart. Sure. <laughs> but this right now, I think, is right. the best way for me to learn. And the least, like, there's also the idea, and in the back of my head, this is always there. I might just not vocalize it. Like, the reality is, is that how I act as a leader, um, like, I don't ever want to hurt a church. Mm-hmm. I never want my leadership to hurt people. I mean, it will, like... And I accept that, like I'm going to mess up and that's going to hurt people. Um, or I'll make an unpopular decision that I still think is right and it's going to hurt people. Um, but that's that's always in the back of my head and weighs heavily on my heart, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Um, and do you know who encourages me in all of this, Caleb? Jesus. And St. Paul. Mm. Way to bring it back. <laughs> See? How awesome Way was that? See, I, I still, I do want to have a, a conversation with St. Paul. I'd like to talk to that man about his freaking humility hmm. and about his experience of God that turned him from, uh, you know, a Jew among Jews, which is not a knock on Judaism, right? Mm-mm. Like, nope. it's a knock on his pride mm-hmm. um, to a man willing to make tents in order to share the gospel, uh, like that's just, yeah. Yeah. I'm thirsty. Are you thirsty? I'm thirsty. Could you use some caffeine? I'm dragging and I'm thirsty. I've got some caffeine. Let's do it. So this is a cute can. Yeah. I was kind of being cheeky when I got it. So, um, I mean, you have been talking about the girliness of the uh, energy drink industry. Yeah. And yeah. So, we are looking at Monster Energy Ultraviolet. And it's got some, like, uh, I don't know what kind of art you call this. In my head, it's always like tattoo ish art, right? Like, they're, oh, look, look, if you look closely, there's an eyeball with uh-huh. a monster M in it, there's a skull. An eyeball with exhaust pipes. With exhaust? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the artwork... It's a hot rod eyeball. The artwork on this can is, like, deceiving. Initially, it looks all, like, butterflies and rainbows and girly, you know, pretty, like, adult coloring book type thing against purple. But then as you look into it, it's... There's Skeletor. Yeah. It's a little more rockabilly, I feel. So anyway, um, yeah, I I don't understand the energy drink um, thing right now because it does certainly seem marketed to 
the feminine mind. But that could be my stereotype and gender bias speaking. Yeah, I was going to say it's 2021. I don't. I don't think. Uh, I don't think you're allowed to to uh, label a self-identifying energy drink as feminine or masculine. Mm. I have been duly corrected. No, I don't. I don't know if that's <laughs> right. I just, you know, it's not a risk I would take. It, it doesn't. It's not the drink itself and the can itself do not have gender. But I feel like it has gender appeal. Mm. But again, this could be my stereotyping. So you're, you're just too old to understand. The, I am. The I am so too old to understand. All right, let's try this stuff. Yep. Now the can does not say that it is um, grape flavored, but I'm a, I'm smelling it. Okay, this doesn't smell like it's flavored purple. Are you having trouble with your can? I have a terrible time with my can. Uh oh. Oh, he's got some like multi tool out to like lift the tab. That was scary. Pocket knife. Okay. Too bad the listeners couldn't see that. This is this is like my favorite pocket knife they've ever owned. It's a Milwaukee fastback mini. Forty eight twenty two fifteen hundred. It's got the little button open. Mm-hmm. Yeah, replace the utility blade heads. It's a box opener. It is. That's that's pretty cool. It is very, very useful. It's pretty cool. I'm gonna wait on you to take the first drink. We'll see what we think, right? Yeah. All right, bottoms up. Ew. Ew. Ugh. Nope. Hard pass, monster. Mm. It is super sweet. Mm. It um it kinda it almost tastes like children's Tylenol, but not as good. Not as good as children's Tylenol. Um Yeah, this is not the uh not the best effort by the uh the folks at Monster. All right, well, uh, okay, so, um, I mean, it's got a ton of uh, vitamin B. B3, tastes B12. like it. Tastes yeah, like it vitamins. really does. Yeah, it does. It tastes like a an artificial grape-flavored vitamin. So, like, if you were to take, like, the purple Flintstones chewables mm-hmm. and, like, boil them in water mm-hmm. and force carbonate them in a soda stream... It's what I imagine it would taste like. Yeah, but it doesn't taste as good as the Flintstones vitamin. No. We've always got to take a second drink. Nope, second drink is no better than the first. All right, I'm going to go ahead and rate this. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'm going to give this a negative 0.5. I'm just gonna give it like a three. I can conceive of something that's worse than this, but this is this is by far the worst that we've had. Yeah, I mean it's worse than Bang. Yeah. And Bang, like in retrospect, is pretty low for me. It's just too sweet. Um, this will be our fifteenth posted podcast, and I'm gonna say, oh my gosh, we've drank fifteen. We've actually drank more than that, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say that this is my least favorite. Of all I, that we've drank. I, I concur. 
So far to me, the reigning champion is still Mountain Dew Rise. In fact, this weekend when I Man, went to the grocery store, I bought two cans. I bought one orange and I bought one berry. And you didn't bring that in today? Sorry, dude. It didn't make it through the weekend? No, that's my <laughs> afternoon boost right there. It did make it through the weekend. Well, I should have drank one yesterday. Anyway. All right. Uh, then you would have been hyper-focused for the first day of annual conference? That doesn't sound like a recipe for oh. success. Um, <sighs> yeah. Instead, I, well, I probably did something a lot smarter than drinking an energy drink. So I watched opening worship, and I got through the first, like, you know, practice voting. And then the laity session came, and I'm like, okay, I'd love to stay and listen to the laity session. Uh, but after preaching and the cookout, I was pretty tired. By the way, I think that's the best I've heard you preach. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was good. It was real good. If, if you haven't heard it yet, go to our YouTube YouTube.com slash GC Trinity UMC and, you know, fast forward to like the, uh, like about the one hour mark and, uh, and you'll have the section that Serena preached. It was, it was really good. Thanks. So, um, I got lax with, with us starting live streaming. I got lax taking that and posting it as a podcast, Mm. but I think this series we're going to, um, because I think this series is important. Trinity students are super excited about it, Caleb. They That's are good. excited. Yeah. That's good. So, so yeah, if you don't want to have to watch, <laughs> perhaps you'll just be able to listen if you're lucky. No, mm. not if you're lucky. I'm going to do it. All right. Okay. Cool. So, friends, we've talked ad nauseum today about St. Paul, uh, and we've gone down some rabbit holes. And usually this is the time during which Caleb would ask me what we have in the mailbag. Um, And we've got some good questions there. But today, we are going to record a bonus bonus episode Hmm. on annual conference, because that's what Caleb and I have been doing today between podcasting. Um, So... I encourage you to go grab that bonus episode, have a listen, uh, if you're interested in what's going on in the United Methodist Church, and specifically in the West Ohio Annual Conference. Um, And with that, uh, this is Serena and Caleb signing out. Stay caffeinated. And stay in love with Jesus. We'll see you next time. Put a second thought on